0: I'm reading from Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. For some time I've been wanting to walk us through the book of Hebrews. And and when we come to doing that, you'll see why it is such an extraordinary book. Last year, we spent some time in the Gospel of John seeing how he found hidden meaning in the life of Jesus that we did not see in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews finds even more revelation of who Jesus is in his life not in the gospels and really not anywhere else in the bible only he sees it in the old testament scriptures and fulfilled in Jesus and it just again when we get there uh, you'll see why it's extraordinary but the same reasons that make it extraordinary also make it difficult to comprehend there's a lot of creating his case, and he'll do this uh, several times as he writes. He creates a case for Jesus, and, and then he tells us what to do about it, or what we should do in, in light of the case he creates. But to follow his argument uh, sometimes is, is tricky. Hebrews, The book of Hebrews is built on the stories and the symbols of the Old Testament scripture. So we need to be familiar with that background in order to get what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So if you've never read the Old Testament, or especially never read Genesis through Deuteronomy, or the Psalms, um, there's a good chance you're going to be lost. Um, You're going to say, Melchizedek, uh, who the heck is that? Uh, Or what does he mean? by these sacrifices for sin. So we're going to spend the next three weeks in the book of Leviticus. Now, if we were a junior high school room class, I would be hearing a lot of groans right now, (laughs) but we're not. We're adults. We're polite. So we are silently planning somewhere else to be for the next (laughs) three weeks. (laughs) Um, But um, look at it this way. Uh, If you observe Lent, think about this as some pre-penitence prior to (laughs) Lent, and it'll work. I confess that for me, the book of Leviticus is dry and tedious and boring. And there I've said it. It's God's holy scripture. It's sacred text, and uh, in all honesty, uh, it's it's difficult for me to wade through. There are several reasons for this. First of all, it lacks the stories, the the narrative, of the books that surround it. Exodus is you know this wonderful story of God rescuing Israel from Egypt, leading them through the wilderness. Numbers. Uh, Numbers can bog down, too, but it has more story content in it. Deuteronomy, it's story after story. But Leviticus was written primarily for Israel's priests. And it has a lot of regulations and procedures and um, crimes and punishments, restorations in it that... uh, that don't have a lot of narrative content. There are a couple of places where there's narrative, but they're kind of dark, too. Someone dies. Someone is is punished for their sin. So um, so it lacks narrative. It's um, a book of rules. It's a legal document. Well, sort of. And then third, it belongs to an ancient culture uh, far away and long gone. So finding it relevant for today is tricky. You know, I, I think sometimes for us, finding God relevant for today is tricky. Uh, sometime during the Second World War, there was this pastor by the name of J.B. Phillips. And he was talking to some college students. and Uh, he asked them, do you think God understands radar? And there was a silent pause as they thought about it. And then they started laughing, and one of them said, well, of course he understands radar. He's a creator. He understands everything. But does God understand modern technology? Does he understand uh, digital uh, cell phones and that sort of thing? It's been popular for Christians in the last uh, 20 or 30 years to do away with the distinction of the sacred and the secular. And what they've told me is, well, every, everything and everyone is sacred, as far as I can see. But the truth is, we have secularized our universe. We, we've secularized our lives. Um, So we can talk about our beliefs in God, but actually trusting God day to day, it's a different thing. All right, so now we go back to the book of Leviticus, and it's hard to get into their frame of reference to appreciate what's here. But we're gonna do this, and eventually you're gonna be glad that we did it. It's like learning the ABCs, learning the alphabet, so that you can read and write. Okay, so we want to read and write our way through Hebrews. We're learning the alphabet today. Leviticus begins in the tent of meeting. Um, This is God's dwelling. In fact, that's what the word tabernacle means, is dwelling place. Uh, This is where the book of Exodus left off, Um, except for the story of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Uh, Just up to that, event and immediately afterwards we have God giving Moses the plans for his tent the tent of meeting in the wilderness. God's going to be mobile like the rest of the nation he wants to travel with them. And so um uh the the architecture is really easy to follow because it's mostly rectangles and squares. You have the rectangular tent. You have a rectangular table. You have a square altar for sacrifice. You have a square uh, altar for incense. You have a rectangular ark of the covenant. Uh, the only things not rectangular are the basin for the water, where the the priests would wash their hands and feet before entering the sanctuary, and the uh, the lampstand. So. Um, the, uh, the rectangle of the sanctuary is divided into the main holy place and then there's a a cube on one end which is the most holy place the Holy of Holies that's where God's presence was manifest where his his glory always radiated uh, there Um, so everyone was restricted from going into the Holy of Holies except for Aaron the high priest who would go in once a year Moses also could go in there, but Moses had uh, an access to God that no one else had. <sighs> okay, we're going to have some fun with this. Um, but Actually, I don't promise that. I'm just saying. Um, the, so, uh, outside the sanctuary was a courtyard, and that's where the main altar was for sacrificing, and also the basin where the priests would wash. The purpose of... This, this tent is to assure the people of Israel that God was with them. They're in, they're in the desert. They don't have a road map. Uh, in fact, Moses asks his father-in-law to travel with them. He says, well, you know the desert. You can help us find all the watering holes. Um, and uh, we're not sure that he did. They're in the desert, and they need supplies. They need provision. And God says, well, I'll go with you. Um, And he wants to be with Israel. He told Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And in Deuteronomy, at the end of the journey, Moses says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to uh, to us as the Lord our God uh, is? whenever we call upon him. What other nation has a God so near moving around, living with them, living among them? Because this was God's residence, it was holy. The people could come into the courtyard where they would bring their sacrifices. They could not ever go into the sanctuary, the holy place. There were these barriers. It was just like Mount Sinai the people were not allowed to come close to the mountain. Um, then Aaron and his sons and other elders were allowed to come part way up the mountain. But beyond that, there was a cloud that only Moses could pass through to meet with God at the top of the mountain. And the tabernacle is set out in the same way with these three zones. And uh, only the high priest could go into that, that ultimate zone. Holiness is a major theme in Leviticus. Several times uh, you'll read, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Or you shall be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Holiness is one of two powerful forces addressed in Leviticus. The other one is pollution. One has a positive power, the other has a negative power. Uh, Pollution can cause you to be stained, and that stain needs to be washed away. Um, And it can happen to you without you knowing it. Um, In chapter 4, there will be a sacrifice for unintentional sin. People who had sinned and they did not even know they had sinned, and, uh, and sin is not necessarily a moral category, they may have touched something that caused that pollution to affect them, or infect them, and they did not even know it happened. And then someone said, oh, you touched that dead body, did you know that you're defiled? Well, that, it was unintentional, um, but still, that power of pollution has separated them by some degree from immediacy with God, because he's holy. So they have to regain their, their cleanness or their holiness to be back in uh, interacting with God. So both holiness and pollution can be lethal if you are not holy as the priest and you try to enter a holy place you'll die if um, if you get too close to God's holiness it's like radiation okay so it's an energy that that can destroy but it's also an energy that can give life Um, Mary Douglas and I really um, love this this woman Uh, she was an anthropologist who uh, spent her life studying uh, cultures, especially primitive cultures, and it one time occurred to her that the book of Leviticus would make a very interesting research subject, and she wrote one of the most creative and interesting books on Leviticus. In fact, say interesting book on Leviticus? How can that be? Uh, that's like a contradiction in terms, but. But really, I mean, uh, when I first read her commentary, um, it's called a a literary and social science commentary on Leviticus. First time I read it, um, it was a page turner for me. You think I'm lying. I'm not. So um, she says that the idea of holiness is not sentimental, but more like Exodus' terrifying concept of unbearable beauty and power. God known in the thunderstorm on Mount Sinai. God who warns Aaron not to come into the Holy of Holies improperly dressed, lest he die. That's the holiness of Leviticus. All right, so we're at the the tent. Moses is standing in the doorway. Um, At the end of Exodus, God's glory-filled the, the tent and Moses could not enter it because it was full of God's glory. So he stands at the entrance and God speaks to him and his first instructions are speak to the people of Israel. Okay, this is the introduction uh, and he's going to tell them what he's supposed to tell them about sacrifice. When God speaks in Leviticus, this will most frequently Be his opening line. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them. A couple times he'll say, speak to Aaron and tell him, or speak to the priest and tell them. But mostly it's speak to the people and tell them, here's how it goes. Here here are the rules. All of a sudden I I flashed on Boy Scouts where you have to... uh, learn these skills, you know, like tying knots and, and helping old ladies across the street, whether they want it or not. Um, and you get merit badges for these things. Uh, but you have to know all the rules. You have to be able to recite them or, or perform them or whatever, you know, light a fire out in the wilderness. Uh, that was our favorite one. Um, uh, burning things. But uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we were kids, right? This will burn. This will burn. All of a sudden, we have no sleeping bag for that night. But reel it in, Smith. The whole book is primarily for the priest. It was their job to perform the rituals. And they had to know how to do that. OK. Oh, we just offered this sheep as a sacrifice look at all this blood what do we do with that we open it up what do we do with the kidneys what do we do with uh, with the, the parts and all of this is gone over for these various sacrifices they also have to make sure that when people bring their sacrifices that they're doing their job right and that they need to know the rules, the rules about the sacred and the, the unholy. And so they instruct, they inform, they guide, they monitor, and so on. So that brings us to the priest, um, because this is important too, in Leviticus and in the book of Hebrews. You know that there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? Each tribe is named after uh, their progenitor. So you have Ru- Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and so on and so on. Uh, all the sons of one man, very busy man. And um, one of them, the tribe of Levi, God chose to be the tribe of priests. Right? Um, in the land of Judah, all of the kings were descendants of Judah. Um, Anyone from any tribe could be a prophet, that would just be God's call. And sometimes the contrast between the prophet and the prophetic word and the priest and the law, very interesting contrast to, to see. One is like engraved in stone, the other is spontaneous. One happens in certain places. God says you you can only sacrifice in the place that's called by my name. But prophecy could occur anywhere, anytime. Uh, The law had all these set festivals. Prophecy was not a set thing. It was was the work of God's spirit. But only the tribe of Levi could supply priests. So... um, this poses a problem that the book of Hebrews is going to have to address, when it refers to Jesus as our priest, our high priest. All right, the first seven chapters of, of Leviticus, and we'll be here for a couple of hours studying them in detail. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, describe the ritual sacrifices, and it is ritual, remember this, this is worship for them. And, and we can imagine that people had feelings while this was going on. They, they came with feelings. We do, too. We don't always acknowledge it. If we are celebrating communion today, and we had the bread and the cup here, it's possible that one or two of us might think, oh, I can't do this today. I don't feel right. I don't feel worthy. I don't feel right with God. I, I, I'm not in that right place to do this. And how wonderful, when you came with feelings like that, to have them resolved, to to hear the pray, priest say, God has provided a way for you to be made right now while you're here. And, and then to realize that's why you go to that place, to bring what's what's troubling you, what's disturbing you, what's not right, and to present it to God and seek his favor, seek his goodness, seek his forgiveness. So, um, Mary Douglas explains that the first chapters of Leviticus are largely about how to make a sacrifice, how to select the right animal victim, how to cut it, what to do with the blood, how to lay out the sections on the altar. Whenever I read these chapters, I can't help but feel like I'm in a slaughterhouse (laughs) or a butcher's shop. I think it's really difficult for us to connect with this. Uh, Even though sacrifice was a common practice in almost every ancient culture, we know that Greeks were heavy into uh, sacrifices so were the Romans uh, but it's far from where we live today and it's important to re- first remind ourselves that they did not the day before the Super Bowl run off to the market and grab a, a pound of, of ground beef all nicely wrapped in cellophane and take it home yeah. that when they brought an animal to sacrifice this was a big deal This was their livelihood, that this was a loss for them. And God asked for the best when they brought sacrifice. This is their their strongest sheep, their strongest bull. Um, Plus, for them, the blood of the animal was sacred. And to take its life was, you didn't just do that. They did not raise sheep to slaughter them. They raised them for the wool. So it wasn't unusual for a shepherd to have named all of his sheep. They were like his children, and, and uh, he'd called them by name. Economically, it was valuable to them, but also as a living thing, their animals were valuable to them. And this is what they brought. And they were very much attached to the sacrifice that they made. Sometimes when we give to charitable cause, uh, we write out a check or donate uh, with a credit card online, and we do this because it's easier for us to give money than time. I'm not going to go work in the rescue mission. I'll send them a couple bucks to promote their work. I'm not going to work in any sort of cross-cultural uh, ministry. Um, I don't have time for that, but I'll send money. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, so what's valuable to you? This is what God asked them to bring. And that's why it's called a sacrifice. Or that's why sacrifice can, can mean a costly investment or donation. There were a variety of sacrifices. Uh, At the end of chapter 7, there's a summary of the sacrifices that have been mentioned to that point. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering. That kind of sucks, doesn't it? First sin and then guilt. You know, like, oh, oh, we have to deal with these one at a time. uh, And another offering for that. And of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so this is a list of of these various offerings. Um, Everett Fox gives three motivations for sacrifice. Uh, He says, first of all, it's a gift. Uh, He emphasizes a gift of value, and it's meant to win God's favor. God, I'm bringing this gift to you. Um, And he likened it to gift gifting in many of our celebrations, birthdays, um, Christmas, it's a way of connecting with another person. You bring a gift, uh, hopefully, that makes them feel good, feel happy. He says another motivation is communion. A, a shared meal forms a bond of relationship between people. You know, not quite like signing a contract over lunch with someone, but you know that can be a, a, a dim image of it. And then he says the third reason is atonement. Now, the word atone, the, the Hebrew word simply means cover. Uh, what we call a yarmulke, you know what I'm talking about, that little round beanie that uh, Jewish men wear, um, is a kippah to them in Hebrew. A is a form of the word for atone. It's a covering. And they wear that covering always out of reverence for God. What does it mean to have your sins covered? Well, it means that they're buried, that they're, they're now out of sight, that they, they no longer haunt us, they, they no longer uh, follow us around. So atonement is the third motivation for wanting to offer sacrifice. I, I want my sins, I want my past to be put behind me and, and buried. Uh, and forgotten. Everett Fox says, which of these rationales is truly at work in the Levitical sacrifice? Is it gift? Is it communion? Is it atonement? He says, actually, at various times, one can find all three of them. The text present a variety of motives and occasions for sacrifice in biblical Israel from thanksgiving to purification and reparation. But in general, one may say of the Israelite sacrifices, one may say of much of the ritual in Leviticus, that it is designed primarily to maintain or repair the relationship between God and Israel. Sacrifice was a crucial element in keeping the covenant and hence God's beneficent presence among the Israelites intact. We have a covenant relationship with God, we want to maintain it, and sacrifices serve that purpose. Again, um, if we think worship, now, a, a lot of contemporary worship is all music, but music is not the only sacrament. Um, but what happens to us in worship? What do we do in worship? Well, it, if it's everything it's supposed to be, we have opportunity to confess our sins and to receive absolution, that is, our sins are, are removed we have an opportunity to praise God for his greatness an opportunity to thank him for what he's done for us especially recently we have opportunity to ask him for things for ourselves and for others and for the world and we have the opportunity to um, just adore him for for who he is as as one British friend said, to just be in his presence uh, singing sweet nothings to Jesus. My favorite time, the intimate moment of worship. But all of this is is in Israel's sacrificial worship. Uh, They just do it with different offerings. We do it with different songs. The sacrifice that we read about in chapter 1 is the burnt offering. This was a basic offering. Um, Fox said it was a standard sacrifice that functions essentially to bring human beings to the attention of God and to win his acceptance. The the unique feature of the burnt offering is that everything goes on the altar. Everything is, is burned. Um, in fact, a literal translation of burnt offering is not necessarily burnt, um, but turned into smoke might be a better translation. It's changed from, from what it is on the altar into smoke that ascends to God. Its, it, its movement is upward. The burnt offering is described three times in chapter one, because there are three different victims being offered. First, if you offer a bull from your herd. Second, if you offer a sheep from the flock. And third, if you come to offer a bird, uh, a mourning dove or a pigeon. Why the gradation? Well, if you have uh, a herd, then you can offer a bull. If you don't have money to have even one um, you know, cow that can calve, um, then you offer a sheep. If you don't have enough money to offer a sheep, you offer a bird. Right? So everyone can come and offer something, um, from the wealthiest to the poorest. They all can approach God's altar and, and connect with him and get what they, they need. All of the sacrifices now that you read about in the next three or four chapters uh, follow the same pattern of the burnt offering. So there's a lot of redundancy here, okay, because it goes into detail about opening up the sacrifice, manipulating the organs, manip- manipulating the blood, sprinkling it, uh, pouring it, smearing it on, on things and people in order to uh, purify and consecrate them. And, uh, and you, you read it over and over again. So, um, what matters is not what these sacrifices share in common, but the little ways that they differ. Uh, what parts of the sacrifice can be eaten, what parts can be eaten only by the priest, what parts the people and the priest may share together um, and uh, what parts go completely to God, and, and no one eats any of the sacrifice. Um, these are just some of the, the variations. Also, what is added to the sacrifice? Uh, some sacrifices may call for um, incense uh, or frankincense to be added with it. So briefly... Chapter one is the burnt offering. Chapter two is the grain offering. You bring uh, you know, flour and some other ingredients. Chapter three is the peace offering, the shalom offering. Only <clears throat> it, 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 it's more than just I'm offering this so that God will bring peace into my life. It's more like making peace. It's, it's more like, well, it's also called the fellowship offering or the communion offering that there is, is a connection going on here. And in this offering, some of the, the food of the sacrifice goes to God in smoke. Some of it is eaten by the priest, and some of it is eaten by the people. And the, again, the idea is a shared meal that reconnects us or that celebrates our connection, the communal offering. And then comes the sin offering. And, and the purpose of this was to cancel out the effects of sin in a person's life. You know, So we're cleansed, and no longer polluted. And then after that, the guilt offering. And um, examples of that type of offering are given. If a person does this, if a person does that, then they're guilty, and they need to bring the guilt offering. This goes all the way into chapter 6. And then the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7 tell us how the priest were to handle um, what is offered, both before the offering, the offering, and afterwards. Uh, There are some parts of the animal that do not get burned on the altar, are taken outside the camp, and and burned in a clean place. (sighs) All right. Yeah, now you know. I had uh, friends of mine, this is years ago, uh, one day their oldest son, who um, was probably sixth grade, maybe seventh grade, he came into the house um, and showed his mom, look, mom, I caught a lizard. And she said, oh, good for you, Stevie. And his eyes got real big and, and bright. And he said, can I sacrifice him? OK, no. Um, reptiles are not allowed. They're not you know, part of the sacrificial victims. So, um, so, even though now you know, or you can read Leviticus and know about sacrifice, don't do it, <laughs> don't do this at home. Uh, There's several things I think we need to understand. First, the sacrificial system of worship worked. It worked. That is, it was effective producing the results it was supposed to affect the atonement for their sin was real okay now it all has to do with the spirit of the worshiper and the spirit of the moment of the ritual but but we, we can't think well these sacrifices didn't do anything for them. It was all in their heads, or, or it all looked forward to what Jesus would do one day. No, this worked for them. Their sins were atoned. In fact, uh, several times we are told that after the sacrifice, the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Real atonement occurred, and real forgiveness was given. It's really important to understand that we don't I mean, we're we're post enlightenment people you know we're um, we're in the i t age and um sometimes we we say we derogatory things about ritual and and really i think that Our culture is starved for rituals. Um, But the, the, the rituals that God has ordained, he made them for a purpose. He wanted to put something in our hands. He wanted to give us something to do. He wanted to make our faith tangible, our love for him tangible, his work in our lives tangible. And it becomes tangible in the ritual. and That's very, very important. We shake hands, that's a ritual. We hug, that's a more meaningful ritual. It expresses love, and it loves at the same time. That's what ritual does. It symbolizes something, it reflects something, but it it, it also does that thing. It brings about that thing. It incarnates love. forgiveness or relationship secondly the goal of worship was always to find God's acceptance for what we offer and if he accepts what we offer he accepts us so the Proverbs say that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord When a wicked person offers a sacrifice, it's not accepted. Remember Cain and Abel? They both brought their sacrifices, and Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's was rejected. And and Cain was all put out. And God said, Cain, you know, why is your face so downcast? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? In other words, you can fix this. And you fix it by changing your behavior. And if you change your behavior, if you live an acceptable life, your offering will be acceptable. Sometimes I think the offering was a test to see if I'm acceptable. Um, I think that they stood by their, their altars waiting to see if God accepted them or not. And Abel went away accepted, and Cain didn't. So finding acceptance is is a big deal. All the way through the Bible. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Acceptable. So we, we still want our worship to be acceptable. Third, they, they kept the sacrificial ritual to maintain their covenant relationship with God. And we've already mentioned this, but every human relationship will go through times of rupture. Oh, we're not talking now. Or, um, oh, we don't hang out so much together anymore. Oh. She really offended me. There's rupture. And, and a lot of times it comes with hurt, feelings, you know, or hard feelings. In healthy relationships, where there's also rupture, I mean, every relationship it happens, rupture is followed by repair. Now, if you don't know how to regulate your emotions, or you're unable to, if you don't know how to work repair, you lose that relationship. And there are people today, unfortunately, individuals that I know who have no friends at all. Because eventually, when a relationship ruptures for them, they never work at repair. They they either don't have the skills, or the will, or whatever it takes, or they don't care enough. There's no, or they're afraid. They're insecure. In a relationship with God, there's rupture. And worship provides a way to repair. So, wonderfully, it doesn't take that much to do that. Sometimes it's, it's hard for me to comprehend this or to, to be aware of it, but God travels with us in this spiritual journey of ours through life. He's with us this morning. He was with you yesterday. He'll be with you tomorrow. He'll be with you this evening, whether your team wins or not. God travels with us. And and living with him nearby creates special conditions for our lives. And when we remember that he's nearby, we conform ourselves to those conditions, or we allow him to transform us so we can live up to those conditions. But when we forget that he's nearby, sometimes we get loose with things. Ruptures occur in our relationship with God. But he has provided us, provided us with the means of repair, and specifically, the mercy and the grace that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mercy and grace. Someone asked me last Monday night, what's the difference between mercy and grace? And my answer was, well, dad said, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve on the positive side. And we receive God's mercy and God's grace through Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is go to him and offer our sacrifice of praise, our sacrifice of worship, our sacrifice of confession, whatever it is at that time that we need the most. And he's there. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord bless you this week. May he cover you with his grace constantly. May he keep away all evil and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.